0: Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 15 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Stephen's Brilliant Defense, Part 2, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 7, verse 30, through chapter 8, verse 1. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? All right, so
1: the significant movement in the book of Acts is from a a religion of Jewish people only, Jews only, to Jew plus Gentile and a worldwide religion. And also significant to the movement is the movement from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And it's amazing that this man, Stephen, sees the significance of that shift, that Mm. things have changed. Um, The Old Covenant uh, religion was founded on animal sacrifice, and Stephen saw that the days for that were over. But also along with that is the very sad theme of Jewish resistance to the movement of God, that when the Holy Spirit moved, when God sent key leaders and deliverers to move them to the next phase of redemptive history, they always resisted. They were stiff-necked and hostile to the messengers that God sent. And that culminated in the death of Jesus. And so Stephen is, is needing to show them their sin and their reticence, their hostility to Christ in order to save some of them. And he did save Uh, At least one of them, Saul of Tarsus, as we'll see as Acts unfolds. So what we're going to see today is the ending of Stephen's brilliant defense of the gospel and his building up of his argument that they always resisted the deliverers and the fact that the time for animal sacrifice and a sacred space, the temple, was over and everything had been made new. Um, Also, we're going to see the death of uh, Stephen as a martyr.
0: Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 7 verse 30 through chapter 8 verse 1 as we prepare to walk through this text today. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Andy, we're picking up really in the middle of a section of Stephen's defense regarding Moses and the law. How does Stephen craft the call of Moses at the burning bush as a vindication of the one they had rejected?
1: Yeah. Okay. So we've seen already with the case of Joseph um, being the one that God had chosen to rescue or deliver His people from famine, and they thrust him aside. They hated him. They some of the patriarchs wanted to kill him, and it was through their hatred of Joseph that he was sold as a slave into Egypt, thus beginning the history of the Jewish people in Egypt. And then God sent them a deliverer, Moses from uh, Egypt, and already we saw last time how um, this Jewish man pushed Moses aside saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And then that was the reason that Moses fled because what he had done had become known to Pharaoh. Mm. And so he leaves. That's exactly where we were last time. And so now after 40 years had passed, so Moses was 80 years old, um, an angel, the angel of the Lord, appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush. And uh, this was the angel of the Lord. This was the pre-incarnate Christ absolutely vindicating Moses as the one chosen by God to be their deliverer, their ruler and deliver. the very point that Stephen is about to make. So vindication comes from the sacred site that Moses had. Of the burning bush and the call of God out of the bush, take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. And Moses was then chosen and sent to be the deliverer and the ruler and the lawgiver for the Jewish nation.
0: Now, why does Stephen stress that it was an angel who appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning Mm. bush? And what does he say about the angel who also shows up in verses uh, 35 and 38 later on?
1: Well, I think uh, careful students of the Bible, especially Christians who understand where we're all heading with the Old Testament, uh, have no difficulty seeing in the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, Mm. um, because the angel of the Lord spoke out of the burning bush, and he's the one that said, I am. Also, God had said uh, concerning the angel who would lead them at Mount Sinai, he said, uh, he, my spirit is in him and he will not forgive your iniquity. Just as we had seen earlier at the time of Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac, commanded by God, uh, as he had stretched out his hand to kill his son Isaac under the command of God, the angel of the Lord spoke to him and stopped him And said, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son, whom you love. Well, who's an angel to speak like that if it's not God? Withheld from me? No angel would ever say that. But this was the pre-incarnate Christ. And so we do believe as Christians that the angel of the Lord who spoke to Moses out of the flames of the burning bush was, in fact, almighty God and the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ.
0: You know, Andy, it's remarkable as we walk through Stephen's defense how many details he includes. I think of when I'm in a stressful situation, many times details leave my mind, they don't enter them, and certainly my defense is not as clear or articulate. Why do you think Stephen, on trial for his life, includes details like Moses' reaction to the burning bush?
1: Well, we have the clear testimony in the book of Acts again and again. We see it with Peter and John. We see it also with Stephen, that that when they speak before their their adversaries, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. And Jesus had said very plainly, when you are arrested, do not worry ahead of time what to say. At that time, it will be given you what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And Mm -hmm. that I think is happening here. Acts 7 was directly written by the Holy Spirit in the mind of Stephen at that moment and it came out of his mouth and then later Luke wrote it down for us and so this is this is the uh, clear evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit to bring in such details without even necessarily developing them mm-hmm. but you know we're looking at at things like the angel the angel the angel several times and all that yeah it's not an accident the Holy Spirit gave these things to Stephen to say
0: That's a powerful meditation as we consider the weight of these words not just that they're weighty coming from Stephen but also So as the Holy Spirit speaks through him, this is a message God intends for the Sanhedrin and the Jews of that day to hear. What does Stephen say about the roles that God gave to Moses, and how does that relate to Stephen's trial before the Sanhedrin? All right, so
1: earlier, uh, the man who Moses tried to separate from his Jewish brother, they were fighting each other. He said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And – It says in verse 35, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. So he quotes that again, and then he emphasizes he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. And he was, in fact, their judge. I don't know if you remember that, that encounter uh, that he had with his father-in-law, Jethro, mm-hmm. where he stood and watched and Moses is spending all day <laughs> long adjudicating cases. This is not, this is a, not a good use of your time. You need to have a pyramid system where you have you know rulers of tens, hundreds, thousands, and mm-hmm. ten thousands before. And you're like the Supreme Court. The highest, hardest cases get to you. At any rate, he was, in fact, sent to be their ruler and judge. But also, he uses the word here, deliver. Mm. God himself sent Moses. There's the answer to your question. But here's the pattern that Stephen is elucidating. You always resist and fight against the ones that God sends to you, and Mm. you've done it again.
0: How does verse 36 point to Christ's ministry and vindication? How is Moses a type of Christ in this passage? Well, Moses is a type of Christ in
1: that he did miracles. He did signs and wonders, and he led them on an exodus. And as a matter of fact... Uh, in, I think, Luke's account of the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that Moses and Elijah, where they're talking with Jesus about the exodus that he was about to effect, uh, and that was the real exodus. The real exodus, which just literally in Greek means way out, um, but the real exodus is the deliverance of the people of God from bondage to sin and from the penalty of sin, which is death. Jesus did the real exodus, Moses did the type and shadow exodus, which was physical, an actual his- historical exodus. Exodus, but it was a type or symbol of the true salvation Jesus came to work. So Moses is a type of Christ in that he did those signs and wonders, the miracles. He was a prophet who spoke the words of God and a lawgiver. Uh, He was their ruler. He was their deliverer, and he led them out of bondage into the, well, almost to the promised land. Mm -hmm. Jesus uh, is the perfection of all of those roles.
0: How does verse 37 also point ahead to the Christ, and how does it contribute to Stephen's defense? All right, so in in Deuteronomy 18, uh, Moses laid the way for the office
1: of prophet, uh, a lasting office in the nation of Israel. And as we remember, uh, it's very clear in the book of Deuteronomy um, that God had spoken with such a terrifying voice, also we see this first in Exodus, such a terrifying voice at Mount Sinai that the people pleaded with Moses that God no longer speak to them because they did not feel they would be able to survive. Please, Moses, go up into the presence of God, go up into the glory cloud and receive from him the words he wants you to say, then come and tell us, and then we'll do everything you tell us to do. And then God said, what the people have said is good. Oh, that they would forever fear me as they do day. So Moses was for the nation of Israel, then the first prophet, certainly the patriarchs were all prophets, but Moses was in the official role as the mouthpiece of almighty God. But then Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord will raise up after me uh, a prophet, a prophet, um, and he will tell you or speak to you the words of God and you must obey him. And anyone who does not listen to him will be cut off uh, from his people. And so he opened up the office of prophet, which many followed, such as you know, Elijah, Elisha, others. But the ultimate prophet, the final prophet, ultimately, not chronologically, but uh, in terms of superiority, is Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews tells us. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so Jesus is the final word of God to the human race. So God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. And there's a threat or a warning. It's interesting there in Deuteronomy also, they have to vindicate the prophet. How can we know if the prophet is sent from God? If what he has said comes true, then he has spoken from God. But if it does not, you don't need to fear him. He is not sent from God. He's a false prophet. And the rules for false prophets were to put them to death. And so Jesus should have been put to death Hmm. if he was a false prophet. But he should be listened to if he wasn't, and the implication is you should be put to death if you don't follow him. So it's, it's death either way, either death for the false prophet or death for you if you don't follow the true prophet. Mm. And that's the threat or the warning here. Anyone who does not follow Jesus as Messiah will suffer eternal death. And so that's the idea of God raising up a prophet like me from among your people.
0: What does the word living mean in verse 38? And how does verse 38 help show Stephen's attitude toward the law of Moses?
1: Yeah, the living words, the word of God, the Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. What a mystery. What an infinite mystery this concept of the living word is because the word is unchanging. Hmm. It's always the same. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. But God's words will never pass away. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, said Jesus, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand and the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. What's the difference? It's immovable, unchangeable. Mm -hmm. God's word never changes. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never. Not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. So one of the essential aspects of living things is move, development, change, you know, movement, development and changing. Um, you look at, at trees, it's spring now, and, and we're seeing all these green leaves that were nowhere to be seen a month mm-hmm. ago, and out they pop. You know, If you saw a tree that looked the same and continues to look the same through the spring, it's dead. So the thing with living things is, is movement and change and development. So here's the irony. God's word, the living words that were passed on to us, never change, and yet they're alive, hmm. living and active, so I think what it is is they are alive as they interact with our hearts and souls. Yeah. As they come into our lives, we make changes. It's catalytic. It it changes us. It transforms us. It's it's electric. It's 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 like they said of the words of the prophet of the uh, sorry the uh, um, Puritans that their words had hands and feet. They kind of rummaged around in your mm. heart and they were convicting, et cetera. Well, God's word is even more that way. So they received, he received living words to pass on to us.
0: Yeah, it's so important and helpful that we understand how that word living is used in relation to Scripture because there are those who think about living documents as those kind of documents that can change or can be interpreted in a new way based on the situation or the circumstance that someone finds themselves in, but not so with the Word of God. Yes, living and active as it interacts with our hearts, but unchanging and eternal in its nature and power. Rock solid, never changes. Even the smallest letter, leaf
1: stroke of a pen will still be reading the same. Isn't that comforting too? We look at how bizarre frankly our culture has gotten how weird even like redefining marriage redefining gender as though we are the first generation that mm. ever really saw the truth about these things quite the opposite we're being greatly deceived mm. isn't it wonderful to know that the bible will never change yeah. and it's just rock solid Absolutely, and yet it is right to call it living and active
0: so how did the fathers respond to Moses' law in the desert? And why is that argument here vital for the overall message that is being laid out as we build toward this conclusion in verse 51 and 53?
1: Well, listen, uh, you know, the, the patriarchs disliked Joseph for a while, but they, they rejected him in one decisive moment, throwing him into a pit and then selling him as a slave. Moses got rejected day after day after day. They couldn't stand him. They, they were fighting against him. When he went up, uh, it, what's cited here is when he went up into the glory cloud uh, for 40 days and they're like, we don't know what happened to this guy. He's hmm. gone. And so they said to Aaron, make us gods, lead us back to Egypt. They, they were ready to go back. Everything that Moses had done up to that point, they would undo by their unbelief. And they did not obey. They did not follow Moses. Moses led them to the brink of the promised land. They sent out the 12 spies. 10 spies, 12 came back, but 10 came back with a negative report. And they would not believe and they would not cross over. And so they had to wander for 40 years in the desert. And so fundamentally, they did not trust Moses and they did not trust God through Moses. They refused to obey. They rejected Moses. It says in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They were willing to go back. Oh, if only we could have those days just like we used to have. Remember the good old days where we ate onions and leeks by the Nile and we had plenty of food and wasn't it wonderful? What a weird alternate reality history they had. They were slaves with slave masters. Mm. And so it fits into the overall argument that Stephen's going to make very plain at the end here, at the climax of his speech. He's going to say, you always resist the deliverers, the leaders that that God sends. And so they rejected Moses. It wasn't the only time. You remember where, um, well, Aaron and Miriam said, you know, God hasn't just spoken through you. He's spoken through us. And then Mm. God struck uh, Miriam with leprosy. Mm -hmm. Then there was... uh, um Cora, uh, Dathan and Abiram and then the earth Swallow them up. Remember, if these men die in an ordinary way, you will know that God has not spoken through me. But if you see the earth open up and swallow them, then you will know that I've been sent by God. As soon as he gets done speaking, the earth opens up, swallows. But the reason for all of that is rebellion, Mm. disobedience and rebellion. It's a consistent pattern of the Jewish nation. Now, lest we Gentiles think we would have done any better, the fact is human nature is the same all over. The Jewish uh, nation represents all of us. And in, in the tendency to resist and rebel
0: and disobey and all of those things, that marks out the entire human race. Andy, there's two powerful phrases in verse 42 that I would love for us to look at for just a moment before we move on from seeing Moses as this type of Christ and how he was rejected. What does it mean in verse 42 when it says God turned away and gave them over? To worship of heavenly bodies. These phrases show up elsewhere in scripture, but it says God turned away and gave them over. What's the significance of this here? Oh, It's, tr- it's heartbreaking.
1: Um, what they were doing with the golden calf, which which they would continue to do, they, they came out of Egypt idolatrous. They came out of Egypt pagans. Hmm. They were pagans, most of them. And most of them died in the desert. Their bodies were scattered in the desert, as Paul writes in Corinthians. You know, they died mm. because they were just straight unbelievers and pagans. And, and that's the quote he's going to uh, give us here from Amos. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert? You know, you lifted up the shrine of Molech and the god of your god, or the star of your god, Refan, the idols you made to worship. And then uh, he says, I'm going to send you away into exile in Babylon. So it's interesting. That's, that's the Alpha through the Omega. Mega of the Jewish time in the Promised Land, uh, so they were idolatrous right straight through. Is the consistent story of Israel going after the gods of the nations, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the of the Philistines? They worshipped all these false gods, and it says God turned away, uh, turned away in disgust. Mm. Uh, there was a loathing inside God concerning His bride to some degree, as Hosea uh, was commanded to marry a. a a wife of whoredom, a prostitute who was constantly going after other men and and God turned away in disgust from his own people um, because of their idolatry. And then it says he gave them over to false worship. And we see this uh, several times in uh, the book of Romans, Romans one, where it says God gave them over. This is wrath, wrath from God. He will not fight against you. He says, go ahead. And he actually even says this in the book of of, um, Judges. He said, turn to the gods you worship. Let them save you. Let them deliver you. Mm. I'm done with you. Mm. So he says that plainly in the book of Judges. And so God turns away in sorrow and disgust, and he gives them over to their paganism.
0: Stephen then turns to one final image before the stinging rebuke that he'll bring in the conclusion. uh, And he turns to the temple and the tabernacle. How is the temple a source of false security to the Jews and what does verse 44 teach us about the tabernacle?
1: Yeah, so one of the charges made against Stephen is that he had never spo- uh, stopped speaking against this holy place and against Moses. So he's already addressed, you know, their strange loyalty to Moses now. Hmm. It's like if you had been alive back then, you would have rebelled against Moses yeah. and hated him. All right? And now you're honoring him. You know, as Jesus says, you decorate the graves of the prophets and you say, if we had lived back then, we would not have taken part with our great grandfathers in shedding the blood of the prophets. And Jesus said, so you testify against yourself that you're the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. In other words, kill me, because that's what you do. Mm. And um, Mm. basically, Stephen's saying the same thing that Jesus did. Mm. Um, So uh, fundamentally, he's going to zero in now. Let's talk about the temple. And you asked Uh, The question, how was it a sense of false security? Well, you really see this especially in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was told to go stand in front of the temple and proclaim uh, concerning their false security. Stop saying, this is in Jeremiah 7, stop saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You should go to Shiloh and look and see what I did there. What's Shiloh? Well, Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle was. Now, there wasn't a temple, of course, when Israel was wandering for 40 years in the desert, and when they crossed the the Jordan River, when they destroyed Jericho, and they took over the promised land, there was a, only the tabernacle, a tent, a movable tent, mm. a, it moved from place to place. And f- when they had conquered, you know, most of the promised land and settled in, uh, they established a a place. And God had said this in Deuteronomy: "You'll go to the one place I choose." And there you will offer your sacrifices. And there it was Shiloh in the time of Eli, the the um, the priest. And uh, as you remember, what happened is they got into a, a war with the Philistines, and um, they got beaten badly on the first day of battle. And so they went and got the the Ark of the Covenant mm. from the tabernacle and brought it as a good luck talisman to the front lines. And Eli was terribly anxious about the the uh, um, the Ark of the Covenant. what ended up happening was the Philistines, they said, oh, what are we going to do now? These are the gods, they said in plural. These are the gods that destroyed Egypt and that did all these things. What are we going to do now? We're going to lose. Well, be men, Philistines. The least you can do is just stand and fight like men even though we're definitely going to lose. And uh, we don't want to be enslaved by the Israelites. Well, they ended up winning. Mm. Philistines did. And God allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines. And when Eli, a very old man at that point, heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured, he fell over backwards and broke his neck. And it was said that day uh, a woman gave birth to a a baby in Eli's family. um, And they named it Ichabod, which is the glory has gone. And so Jeremiah said, go look and see what I did in in Shiloh. Do you think I'm not going to allow the Babylonians to come and destroy this Mm -hmm. temple just because you have a temple? because you have the Ark of the Covenant, you think you're safe. So Jeremiah said that. You, you think you're safe to do all these wicked things? Mm. So, um, and it's a consistent message. Also, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter one, um, who, who ordered this trampling of my, my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moon Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Don't have this faulty trust in the temple of the Lord. And so as he says here, quoting Amos, he said, I, I let you go go away. I, I'm going to send you away into, into exile in Babylon. Well, what did the Babylonians do to the temple? They burned it. Mm. They destroyed it. They leveled it. And so, yeah, our forefathers had the tabernacle, uh, and then in the time of David, and then Solomon, the temple was built, but it didn't save them. It didn't save them. And so what do you think is going to happen now? And Stephen knew it was going to happen. Jesus had predicted Do you see all these great stones here in the temple? Not one stone here is going to be left on another. He is giving them, while the temple still stands, one final warning to turn away from this false religion and turn to the true religion following Jesus Christ. And so he's zeroing in on animal sacrifice and the temple as being no no focus of their religion a good luck charm to protect them from the babylonians or indeed the romans in 8070 none of that but instead urging them to a genuine love for the living god and he does that by saying God doesn't live in temples made by men. I don't know if you're going to ask about that. But.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that briefly. The significance of verse 48 for Stephen's case here mm-hmm. and, and how Stephen uses this quotation from Isaiah 66 in a powerful way to put that man-made temple in its place. Right? He's concluding this argument as he gets ready to make his final charge.
1: Yeah, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, he's quoting that, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I like it to say it this way. What kind of house can you build for me? Hmm. I mean, we should all, the human race should be humbled by that. As Isaiah himself said, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor all of its animals for burnt offerings. Hmm. The whole world isn't enough for God. And, And Solomon knew that when he dedicated the temple. In his prayer of dedication, he said, heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Solomon knew it. God doesn't build. God doesn't dwell in a in a man made box. As a matter of fact, there is no container for God. You mm-hmm. have no container where you can put the omnipresent, infinite God in some box where He's on this side of the boundary, but not on that. There is no place where God is not. You know. You think about one Puritan said. Uh, you know, a pagan uh, said to him, "You know, where is God?" I would want to begin by asking, "Where is God not?" There is no place that God is not. And so therefore, there is no special, sacred, holy place where God is there, but he's nowhere else. And so fundamentally, God does not uh, live in these temples. And we know from what he said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, the day is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so he was willing for the temple to be destroyed and never rebuilt. So fundamentally, Stephen is setting the table for the end of the animal sacrificial system.
0: So then we arrive at verses 51 through 53. We've been pointing toward this since we began even the previous episode, thinking about all that Stephen was building toward in the argumentation that he lays out. How does Stephen finally apply this message that he's been uh, laying before the Sanhedrin? And what does the tone of his conclusion show us about Stephen and about the Holy Spirit? Well, this is powerful.
1: You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law That was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. That's the culmination of his message. You always resist the Holy Spirit, Mm. and you always resist the messengers the deliverers sent. So we've seen that as the unifying theme. Um, Now, what does he say specifically? Stiff necked people. Mm. All right. I consider stiff necked to be equal to hard hearted. I think they're the same thing. Both stiff and hard, those adjectives imply an unyieldingness, that God comes to change us, to get us to yield, and we fight, we rebel. We get stiff, we get hard, we do not submit, we do not yield, we're rebellious. Mm. And so their stiff neck, the neck specifically, is where the head would drop in submission, um, but they won't. Uh, They're proud, their heads are lifted high before God. So they're stiff neck. So it means they're rebellious and proud. And then he calls them uh, having uncircumcised hearts and ears. So that's same as having a hard heart, but a pagan heart. They have pagan hearts. Uncircumcised meant pagan or Gentile to them. You're just like pagans. You've got uncircumcised hearts and ears. Mm. In other words, when Jesus would frequently say with his parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You don't have ears. You guys are deaf. You're like the idols you worship. They have ears, but they hear not. Eyes, but they see not. They have feet, but they move not. That's what you're like. You're dead, spiritually dead. And so he's telling them they're in grave spiritual danger. They're stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and they're just like their fathers. And Jesus says the same thing in in his seven woes in Matthew 23. Woe to you, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. You know, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. All that blood will come on this generation because you're about to kill me, the son of God. Mm. And so fundamentally, he's saying in every case, when God sends a messenger, when God sends a prophet, you resist, you hate, you oppose just like your fathers. And now to crown it all off, you're the generation that killed the incarnate son of God. Mm. You you killed the righteous one the holy one the son of god you betrayed him and murdered him and then he clinches it with a you're you're so law-abiding you receive the law but you didn't keep it mm. as jesus said also you know if you obeyed moses you'd believe in me if you believe moses you would believe me so that it, it clinches it now what's going to happen here and jesus said this the reason the world hates me is that i testify that what it does is evil mm. so basically The Holy Spirit, by these convicting words, brings them to a fork in the road. It's kind of like Martin Luther said, you should always preach in such a way that when you get done, people will either hate you or they'll hate their sins.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, Stephen's done that here. They're going to either hate him
0: or they're going to hate their sins. That's the the fire of this concluding uh, uh, message. And it's a stark contrast because earlier in the book of Acts, we had Peter preach, and and it seems that those who heard him Hated their sins rather than hating him. But here, pierced to the heart. here, quite the opposite. Yeah. The Jews react, as we might expect, after this incredible mm-hmm. argument that Stephen's laid out mm-hmm. with fire a and bridge. a desire to see Stephen put to death. What do we learn in verses 54 of this chapter on into uh, verse 8? And we'll talk a little bit about the specifics about uh, the young man at whose feet Mm -hmm. they lay the coats. But what do we learn about Stephen and the Sanhedrin in this moment uh, right on the heels of this final accusation? Well,
1: one thing I've noticed, I I don't want to say too much here about myself, but I've noticed that um, pride and sinful anger go together. The root of all sinful anger on my part is pride. And so these people are sinfully angry. They're they're definitely, you know, in the way the expression we use in the 21st century, they're definitely shooting the messenger. Mm. And what does Stephen do? He's done nothing to anybody except preach and teach and live. And his face was like the face of an angel. And we're going to see how he dies. He dies so graciously. He's got a kind heart toward them. But he really believes the spirit uses him to say this is the kind of fire it's going to take to save these people. It yeah. was like John the Baptist. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain hill shall be leveled. He was a level leveler of mountains and hills, John mm-hmm. the Baptist was. Elijah was too. And, and Stephen's like this, though so it doesn't seem to be his home base or his nature. He's a kind person, but he's fiery here. And so they are enraged. And so I think whenever you read of people doing badly in the bible we should always be humbled by it we should not say boy thank god i'm not like that Mm -hmm. we should say you know where do i see prideful rage Mm -hmm. inside my heart and a resistance to the word of god i want to be humble i want to yield to it so they're enraged and they're gnashing their teeth at him and they're they've already killed him in their hearts they just haven't done it physically yet yeah
0: What did Stephen see in verse 55 and in verses 55 through 58, what does he say and how do they react to this vision that he has?
1: Stephen, and here's what we said just a moment ago, Mm. full of the Holy Spirit. So all this came from the Holy Spirit, but now full of the Holy Spirit, he had a vision. He looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Mm. So I just preached on Easter Sunday a few days ago, uh, as we're recording this now, a few days ago, um, but uh, uh, seeing Jesus. And uh, I emphasize the fact that we've never seen Jesus. That so once Jesus ascended to heaven, you know, uh, Peter can say, though you have not seen him you." love him well stephen was the exception i chose not to give the exception but uh you know and also the apostle paul was caught up to the third heaven and also mm. john saw him in his glory as well so there are these visions and stephen has a vision of heaven open and jesus the one they hate the one they have killed standing at the right hand of almighty god so you got the, this radiant glory and then jesus the son of man now realize how much this is like what jesus said to annas and caiaphas at his trial You know, they said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Mm. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Same vision, except one thing. Stephen sees him standing up. Uh, the vision always in or the, the words in, in the book of hebrews is that he's sitting down mm-hmm. the idea is that he's finished his work and he's sitting to reign but in this case it seems standing to greet stephen as he dies and standing obviously intensely interested in what's happening like fundamentally you know when when god says in psalm 110, sit at my right hand mm-hmm. until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet god is either going to kill his enemies or convert them And so in either case, Jesus is highly interested in what's about to happen to his beloved Stephen. Mm -hmm. So he's standing up and standing ready to receive him, but also to judge those who are about to kill his messenger.
0: Andy, you mentioned just the character of Stephen and and his nature, even in facing down death. What similarities do we see between Stephen's final words and those of Christ? And how does the manner of Stephen's death, show his character.
1: Right. Oh, you know, Jesus says something interesting in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not cast your pearls before swine. Uh, if you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Um, and so the idea of dogs, give not, give, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before swine. The idea is of wild boars and, or rabid dogs. And that's what these people act like at this point. Yeah. When he says, look, I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, they should have fallen down on their faces even though they didn't see the vision and, mm. and believed in Jesus. But instead they weren't anywhere near ready for that. And so they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. That just says everything. We're not listening. Mm. They don't have ears to mm. hear. And so they're rushing at Stephen to tear him to pieces. They're ready to kill him right there. And so they drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. So there's no doubt that that Stephen is going to die. And he knows that. Um, And it says, The witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, how is Stephen like Jesus? Well, in so many ways. But here, as they're stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he said, uh, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so he dies peacefully and lovingly. Hmm. The first statement Receive my spirit is very much like Jesus' statement as he's dying. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so he dies like Jesus and he dies filled with love, which reminds us also of Jesus' statement. Father, forgive them. They don't know what what they're doing. And so specifically in the case of Saul of Tarsus, who is the witness and who consented to the death, um, God did answer this prayer. He did not hold this sin against Saul, Hmm. um, but saved him from all his sins.
0: Yeah. Andy, what's the significance of Acts 8.1 as really a final word on the death of Stephen? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this incredible chapter we've spent the last two episodes mm-hmm. examining?
1: Well, it is incredible, and I can't wait to meet Stephen in heaven. Mm. Uh, you know, It's just one of the strange providences of God that super talented, super zealous, godly uh, messengers and servants uh, die young. Mm. Like David Brainerd at 29, uh, Borden of Yale, uh, numbers of others, just uh, Robert Murray McChain, a lot of great, great men and women died very young. You know, like, oh, what they could have achieved with more time. And But it was God's will to take Stephen out of this world. And so um, as we think of Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul, it almost feels like God traded Stephen for him. Mm-hmm. He was willing to kill him to save Saul. And that's a pretty overwhelming thought. You know, and God's ways are not are not our ways. And uh, it was worth it. We think about all of the, the, the truth that would flow through Saul, through Paul's pen, like the book of Romans, mm. and all of the work um, that Paul would do for the gospel. Um, but to be willing to trade such a great man as Stephen to convert this man, Saul. And there is a connection because in Acts 26, the third testimony of Saul's conversion, he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And we'll talk about that in due time, but the goads are inducements that God puts in a heart, in a character, to move them to Christ. And the nature of Stephen, his arguments that could not be refuted, the manner of his death, his personality, these were goads that pushed Saul to conversion, but not yet. And soon he goes right from this to consenting to Stephen's death and persecuting the church. So Mm. we'll talk more about that in due time.
0: Yeah, Andy, any final thoughts on this chapter we've spent the last couple weeks looking
1: at? Uh, No, it's glorious. It's well worth going back over and studying. So Mm. I commend that to all of our hearers and just be in awe uh, as Stephen was like the morning star of the new covenant in terms of animal sacrifice, the end of the temple, uh, the time for Jesus to put an end to the old covenant and to move into new covenant um, Christianity. That is uh, uh, beautiful. So he's the morning star Stephen is in terms of preachers in the church who saw it all coming.
0: Well, this has been episode 15 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 16, entitled Persecution and the Growth of the Church in Samaria, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for
1: listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom.